Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Hi there. A quick note to let you know that we'd love to have you join our expert tour guides in the streets of New York on one of our Bowery Boys walks. Our licensed New York City tour guides lead small groups on walks that we've developed especially for our Bowery Boys listeners. Tours of Gilded Age Mansions, Jane Jacobs versus Robert Moses, Greenwich Village, Historic Harlem, and so much more. Head to BoweryBoysWalks.com to join the fun. One of the most tragic sights associated with the American Revolutionary War is not a battlefield, but a body of water on the western shore of Long Island and east of the small village of Brooklyn. It was here that the British Army, who occupied New York for most of the duration of the war, built prison ships with captives from George Washington's army and civilians who happened to run afoul of the occupying army's whims. For the duration of the war, hundreds of men, women, and children were thrown onto these wretched ships, forced to endure a litany of brutal and torturous conditions. Over 11,000 people died of hunger, dysentery, or typhoid, most perishing aboard the largest of these prison ships, the HMS Jersey. More deaths than on any single battlefield from America's War for Independence. For years after the British left New York, the ghosts of those who perished aboard these ships would make themselves known to those along the shoreline, today's Flushing Avenue, with frequent discoveries of human remains washing ashore after stormy nights, and many more discovered when the swampy grounds were excavated. In later years, these remains would haunt the imagination of Walt Whitman. In verse, he wrote, Those cartloads of old charnel ashes, scales and splints of moldy bones, once living men, once resolute courage, aspiration, strength, the stepping stones to thee, today, and here, America. But this isn't a ghost story, but a surprising tale of reinvention, symbolism, and might. For in this very bay, where thousands of American patriots died, would rise one of the country's largest naval yards, built for the service and protection of the very country those men and women died for. The complex that would then create weapons of war for other battles, as well as jobs for hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers. The United States, and Brooklyn in particular, would have developed quite differently without this place. And so too would a small neighborhood to its west, with a fascinating history much greater than its relative size today would suggest. The Bowery Boys episode 414, the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and Vinegar Hill. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young, and that admittedly melodramatic opening begins our tale of the New York Navy Yard, better known then and now as the Brooklyn Navy Yard. 
the former shipyard for the United States Navy, and today an industrial park with hundreds of businesses across its 300 historic acres. Today you'll find everything from food production, distilleries, and wineries, to TV film studios, furniture manufacturers, and high fashion. And yes, it's still an active shipyard today, privately operated by GMT Shipyard Corporation. The Navy Yard is located on the East River west of the neighborhood of Williamsburg and east of Dumbo in that once-cursed place known as Wallabout Bay. Its most prominent boundary is to its south, Flushing Avenue. And we'll begin our story here, specifically within the historic structure known as Building 92, one of the former U.S. Marine Commandant's residences, built in 1858. It's here that I met up with Andrew Gustafson, the vice president of Turnstile Tours and Studio, which has operated public tours of the Navy Yard for over a decade. So going back to about 1810 through 1974, if you came to an entrance of the Brooklyn Navy Yard, you'd be greeted by a U.S. Marine. So they provided all the security for the yard. There used to be a large Marine barracks here. And so Building 92 was built as part of that Marine barracks complex. The other buildings were all torn down during the First World War. So all that remains of that original complex from 1858 is Building 92. That was all designed by Thomas Ustick Walter, um, who is actually uh, one of the architects of the U.S. Capitol. And it's one of the few, if the only... Um, surviving example of his work here in New York City. Once the land of the Canarsie people who hunted and fished along the banks, by the late 18th century, the western end of Long Island was mostly a place of colonial farms, save for two small villages, Brooklyn and a little later on, Williamsburg. In 1781, a Long Island shipbuilder named John Jackson purchased property along the banks of the bay and opened a private shipyard, which he operated with his brothers. Across the East River, in the city of New York, were actually several other shipyards, becoming a key industry in these years before the opening of the Erie Canal. Jackson's shipyard eventually built ships for the federal government at a time when there wasn't much of a naval force in the new nation. Largely, this area was very swampy. It was a huge salt marsh. And so most of what is the Navy Yard today is actually fill. So today, the boundary of the Navy Yard is Flushing Avenue, but that also basically used to be the shoreline. And so they started to fill in part of that when they built this uh, shipyard uh, in the 1790s. This was built by the Jackson brothers, and they built actually what was really the first ocean-going vessel built in Kings County, which was the Canton. So that was built for the Far East trade that was a merchant ship. Uh, And then they got a contract to build a ship for the U.S. Navy, uh, which was the USS Adams in 1798. President John Adams and the first Secretary of the Navy, Benjamin Stoddard, oversaw the construction of new frigates in the 1790s, ships which might have continued to be privately manufactured well into the 19th century, except for one pretty big thing, the need for timber. These ships needed so much timber in their construction. So many forests chopped down and transported from the interior of the country to the coastal region where these wooden vessels were manufactured. Because the whole point was that the Navy had to manage this supply chain of timber. And what Secretary Stoddard found himself doing was renting land to store this timber 
before it was sent to the shipyard. So essentially they're renting property all over the country and just shuttling this timber around. It's very expensive. And so he looks at the letter of the law of the Naval Acts and he said, well, this money is appropriated for the acquisition and the storage of timber. Um, There's nothing that says that I can't buy land so that the government owns the land to store this timber and maybe we could also build ships on that land. So in 1800, he starts using this bit of uh, accounting trickery to acquire six Navy yards. Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Boston, Philadelphia, Norfolk, Virginia, Washington, D.C., and then finally on February 23, 1801, they spent $40,000 to buy 23 acres of land on the west shore of the Wallabout Bay here in Brooklyn. That land for the Navy Yard was actually purchased from John Jackson, the private shipbuilder who, by that time, in 1801, had begun developing other areas near the shipyard, including several blocks of new housing to the west. In an attempt to appeal to the newly arriving Irish immigrants, Jackson named this development for a pivotal battle from the Irish Rebellion of 1798, the Battle of Vinegar Hill. Jackson was so successful in attracting Irish workers to this waterfront development that over the decades then, it would be better known as Irishtown, one of many such places in the independent cities of New York and Brooklyn that would eventually see hundreds of thousands of new Irish settlers. By the year 1808, Vinegar Hill would also be home to a very unusual new landmark. With more work being done along the banks of Wallabout Bay, including at the government's new Navy Yard, more and more human remains were discovered. So many, in fact, that John Jackson erected a memorial on Hudson Avenue to the victims from the Revolutionary War prison ships. It was known as the Martyr's Tomb, a memorial containing the remains of hundreds of people in a sunken crypt interred within 13 caskets, representing the original 13 colonies. Meanwhile, not that much was actually being done over at the Navy Yard, due in part to Adams' successor, Thomas Jefferson, who was not quite as gung-ho about a Navy. And so as soon as Jefferson comes into office... He discovered that he's now the steward of six Navy Yards that he has no interest in owning. And so they start, they launch these major investigations. They try and return the land. Many people claim that buying this swamp here in Brooklyn was a massive boondoggle and a waste of money. And so for that reason, it takes several years before any permanent structures are built here. They don't start building any buildings here until 1805. um, And the first ship doesn't start to be constructed here until 1817. So it sort of gets entangled in all of this political intrigue and, and it slows the development of this as a major shipyard. However, the oldest surviving piece of architecture associated with the Navy Yard is from this very early period a fine mansion known as the Commandant's House. It took a few years to actually start development and construction here at the Navy Yard, and the first thing they build is that Commandant's House. So it was built between 1805 and 1807, roughly, and it's uh, on Vinegar Hill, which is a great place to put the Commandant's House because it overlooks the entire Navy Yard. So the Commandant could go out onto his 
second story balcony and see what was underway at the Navy Yard and see the ships being launched and, and built. The Commandant is the commander of the Navy Yard. So this is a naval officer, and they were in charge of everything that went on here in the Navy Yard. So when we talk about who's working here at the Navy Yard, you have leadership, that is, naval officers, but then most of the people who are working here are, are civilians. The Commandant's house, however, is not part of the Brooklyn Navy Yard today. It's a private residence, but you could peer through the gate, at least, and see that extraordinary architecture. While things are slowly getting up to speed here at the Navy Yard, a major technological revolution would change the game. The advent of steam power and steamboats such as the Claremont, Robert Fulton's steam-operated vessel, which left New York on August 17, 1807, a miracle ship for many, which sailed up the Hudson River to Albany. Although its average speed was 4.7 miles per hour, the vessel reinvented the possibilities of water transportation. By 1814, Fulton's ferryboat, Nassau, began taking passengers to and from New York and Brooklyn, and essentially turning Brooklyn Heights into New York's first commuter town. The steam revolution was here. And it eventually came to the Navy Yard, of course. But things are a little behind technologically. As Andrew explained to me, the yard simply wasn't this behemoth institution that we think of today. So in the early days here, we're building ships out of wood and they're, they're sail-powered ships. And so the first ship to be built from start to finish and commissioned into the Navy here at the Navy Yard is the USS Ohio. Um, so that is a 74-gun ship of the line, as it's called. Actually, if this was in the British Navy, it would be called a third-rate ship. The Navy throughout this time was, was a very small institution. You know, when we talk about the number of ships in the Navy, we're talking in the dozens. If we talk about the number of sailors, we're talking in the, the thousands, not the tens of thousands or the hundreds of thousands. So it's a relatively small, close-knit institution. And these ships, some are being built here at the Navy Yard, but really more importantly in this period and throughout the Navy Yard's history, is ships are being repaired and they're being provisioned here. So there are ships that are going around the world for various expeditions um, and for patrols, um, and they're getting outfitted here at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Steam eventually arrived to the Navy Yard in 1837 with the appropriately named ship, the Fulton, a sidewheel steamer. More important to the future of the U.S. Navy was the man in command of that ship on its opening voyage, the man whose imprint is still seen at the Navy Yard today, Matthew C. Perry. Perry was born in Rhode Island in 1794, and you could say that he had the Navy in his blood. Both his father Christopher and brother Oliver were distinguished naval officers. Matthew served aboard naval vessels as a teenager, working his way up from one ship to the next, sailing the Mediterranean Sea and the African coast, combating pirates and slave traders. In 1822, Perry quite literally planted a United States flag at Key West, claiming the Florida Keys as part of the United States. By 1833, he would be assigned to the Navy Yard to oversee its growth and evolution. Perry was a transformative figure to the Navy, interested in both modernizing the fleet, but also improving the intellectual lives of its sailors. 
he immediately prioritized the manufacture of steam-operated warships at the Navy Yard, believing it critical to the future of America's defense, saying in 1838, quote, the destinies of nations are henceforth to be in a great measure controlled by a power of which steam will be the great governing element. Early on in his tenure, he and other like-minded officers founded the Naval Lyceum, quote, to elevate and adorn the character of our Navy by placing within the grasp of its officers the means of acquiring professional and general information. Central to its mission was a library of books related to science, geography, and history. Among its charter members were former presidents, such as John Quincy Adams, and prominent writers, James Fenimore Cooper, and Washington Irving. There was also a cabinet of curiosities, a museum filled with artifacts brought back to the Navy Yard by officers, antiquities taken from Egypt, Greece, and the Far East, mummies, even true oddities like a piece of George Washington's coffin. Perry also championed the founding of a naval hospital in 1838. Many years later in the 1850s, it was expanded to include an on-site cemetery and most importantly to American medical history, a laboratory. The first director of that laboratory was a doctor named Edward Robinson Squibb. And it was here that Squibb would perfect anesthetic ether. By 1857, he would found his own pharmaceutical company near the yard, the beginning of what would eventually become one of the world's largest drug companies. Perry would help build the foundations of the Navy Yard, and in time for its greatest challenge yet, the American Civil War. We'll get to that and the construction of some of the most famous and infamous ships in American history after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. 
In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. But I guess I should back up for a second and ask the question, how do you build a ship? By the mid-19th century, the area surrounding the Navy Yard was populated with factories, warehouses, dry goods stores, blacksmiths, rope walks, paint makers, sail makers, lumber yards, glass blowers, and counting houses, all in service of the yard. But the yard's operating stage, if you will, for the construction of a ship was actually a large sunken basin below the water level called a dry dock. And the Brooklyn Navy Yard has one of America's greatest dry docks. In fact, it's one of New York's most unusual historic landmarks. So unusual that Andrew and I left Building 92 and headed out into the yard to get a closer look. Andrew, where have you taken me? It looks, I don't know, it looks like we're in like some sort of ancient civilization. So we are here at dry dock number one. This is the oldest dry dock at the Brooklyn Navy Yard and the third oldest in the United States. This is one of the major stops on all of our tours. We make sure people can come in and check this out because not only is it a major historic site, but it is also still actively used today for ship repair. So this was built in 1851. Um, it took about 10 years to build, in part because the Navy Yard is all built on a salt marsh. Mm -hmm. And so they built this giant granite basin into this very soft, wet, sandy soil here. So it, it took a long time to build and was a major engineering challenge. But when it was built, it could fit any ship in the U.S. Navy. During construction in the 1840s, in fact, engineers had to deal with pesky underground springs, which routinely filled the excavation with water from below. It was strangely transfixing, looking at a place where ships had been constructed and repaired for over 170 years. This long pit with stepped granite sides, using 23,000 cubic yards of facing stone, sealed from the bay by a caisson or a dry dock door. If you've ever seen a canal lock in action, then you can probably picture this in your head. 
Again, historically, we had six dry docks. Um, so we had two more built in the 19th century, one built in the early 20th century, and then dry docks five and six were built during World War II. Now, today, one, five, and six are still in use for ship repair. They're all operated by a company called GMD, and they use them mostly for commercial ship repair. So we're mostly working on tugboats, barges, ferries. They also do a lot of work on U.S. Coast Guard ships. And if we look into the Wallabout Bay right here, we can see a Coast Guard ship that just came out of dry dock. That was in that dry dock a week or ago or so. And then we can also see this big uh, offshore vessel probably doing work for the offshore wind industry that was also just in this dry dock. It just came out the other day. The dry dock was heavily used during the Civil War when hundreds of commercial ships sailed into Wallabout Bay for conversion into battleships. And at least 16 new warships were created here during that war. The Navy Yard was really, really significant, especially in supporting the blockade of the South. So most of the vessels that were used to blockade the Confederacy at some point would have been outfitted, provisioned here at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So they would come, you know, from the western Gulf of Mexico all the way back here to New York to get repairs done and things like that, because this was the largest, most capable yard. There were a few yards that were closer, like say in Washington, but that yard was quite small. Norfolk was taken by the Confederacy, then was taken back by the Union, and in those intervening several months, um, the Confederacy was able to essentially sabotage the entire place and destroy all the machinery. So that wasn't very useful. Philadelphia during the Civil War had a number of issues with ice blocking the Navy Yard. So New York de facto kind of became the, the heart of the Union blockade. The Navy Yard also had a role in the creation of the Union Navy's most famous ship, the USS Monitor, its first commissioned ironclad, essentially a steam warship wearing iron armor, the latest innovation in ocean battle. Due to its iron shell, though, the Monitor was actually constructed at an ironworks in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, on the site of today's Bushwick Inlet Park. And eventually the ship was delivered to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, where it was outfitted with 49 men, armed and eventually commissioned. It almost immediately went into battle, facing a Confederate ironclad, the CSS Virginia. They fought to a standstill, the first ever battle between two ironclads. On the early morning of January 1st, 1863, the Monitor sank during a storm off the coast of Cape Hatteras. The war brought enormous transformation to the Navy Yard. Most everything was upgraded for a new type of warship. In fact, in 1876, the USS Trenton became the last wooden vessel with sails to be manufactured here. The Navy Yard, of course, being federally owned, was not actually under local jurisdictions at the time. Meanwhile, the world outside its walls had changed quite rapidly in just a few decades. What had once been the quiet village of Brooklyn to its west and the village of Williamsburg to its northeast were, by the year 1855, actually two different independent cities. Afterwards, Brooklyn absorbed Williamsburg, which became known as the Eastern District, along with today's neighborhoods of Greenpoint and Bushwick. The Navy Yard was now but one portion of a heavily trafficked industrial waterfront, which ran from Newtown Creek down to Red Hook. 
The population of Brooklyn swelled during this period as well, with areas around the Navy Yard an overcrowded working-class neighborhood. That neighborhood of Vinegar Hill, better known during this period as Irish Town, had far, far more than just Irish laborers living here. Among the tenements and row houses were coal yards, chemical plants, grocers, many, many saloons, and down on the waterfront, adjacent to the Navy Yard, the Brooklyn Gaslight Company. I imagine enhancing the region's stultifying aromas. And there was also still on Hudson Avenue, the Martyr's Tomb. By the 1870s, an industrial neighborhood was simply no place for the remains of Revolutionary War patriots. Quote, Our patriot citizens have erected a hundred tombs in dinner table speeches, wrote one letter writer to the Brooklyn Evening Star in 1852. But not one bone had yet been taken from the corrupt cellar on Hudson Avenue. Unquote. The crumbling house containing the coffins had, by the 1850s, succumbed, quote, to a little gore of ground that has been made the receptacle of filth from adjoining houses. Among the loudest voices crying for a more respectable treatment of these remains was Walt Whitman, who lived near the Navy Yard on Ryerson Street. Eventually, finally, In the 1860s, a new home was planned, a short distance south, in a small park upon the former site of a Revolutionary War fortification named for General Nathaniel Green. In 1867, Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox redesigned that park, and it was renamed Fort Green Park. In 1873, the remains of the prison ship Martyrs were moved to the park And in 1908, 100 years after the remains were first brought together in that small tomb in Vinegar Hill, a fantastic new memorial was officially dedicated, the Prison Ship's Martyrs Monument, topped with a spectacular Doric column designed by Stanford White. Now, let me just underscore why it was such a good idea to move this Revolutionary War monument to a more respectable neighborhood, at least a less complicated one. Just three blocks south of the memorial's old site was Sands Street, a most delightfully notorious street of the late 19th and early 20th century, a street which earned the nickname Barbary Coast. Where there are sailors there's bound to be trouble. Carson McCullers would later write, quote, at any hour of the night, some excitement is going on in Sand Street. The sunburned sailors swagger up and down the sidewalks with their girls. The bars are crowded and there are dancing, music, and straight liquor at cheap prices, unquote. It was a so-called red light district, a perpetual temptation for both the men getting on and off the ships and for the Navy Yard's workers. It was also famous for its illegal distilleries and also a place to get a tattoo, find some sexual excitement of any kind, and a place where you could generally intermingle with people of all kinds. By the 1920s, it was such a temptation that the Commandant ordered the Sand Street Gatehouse, which is still there by the way, ordered the gatehouse to be shuttered to block men from the street's intoxicating draw. Now, I'm emphasizing this because it is the same people 
visiting these establishments, letting off some steam, who were employed at the Navy Yard during an extraordinary period of productivity by the late 19th century. It was from here in 1895 that the U.S. Maine was constructed and commissioned, the greatest ship in the American fleet, a ship whose destruction in a terrifying explosion in Havana, Cuba in 1898 would ignite the Spanish-American War and launch a flurry of new naval vessels. The yard had actually been ramping up for over a decade before the U.S. actually enters the First World War. Part of the reason for this is the uh, Spanish-American War, the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt. You have this period where America has all of a sudden become a great power and has this global empire. And so you need a Navy in order to patrol it. And the United States steps into the fray of this period in the 1890s and, and early 20th century when you have this growing arms race in naval battleships. And so we start to build battleships during this time period. You know, the flagship of the Great White Fleet, which was a huge project of President Teddy Roosevelt, was to show that the United States could build and operate and sustain a massive squadron of modern Navy ships and send it all the way around the world. We get into this period when we, we're building world-class modern battleships. And that includes ships like the USS New York, um, the USS New Mexico, and of course, very famous ship, the USS Arizona, which is built here in 1916. World War I was not a very naval conflict, but the Navy Yard did play an intriguing and even provocative role in the war. When we do enter World War I, again, the role of the Navy Yard as a place of repair and outfitting is very important. And a lot of what we build actually are submarine chasers. Um, so we build over a hundred of these wooden hulled little submarine chaser boats um, that are sent, some are operating in uh, U.S. waters and some are sent over to Europe. Not terribly successful in hunting German U-boats, but still that, that was one of the major contributions that we made during the First World War. While peacetime is actually good for most of us, it is not very good for a Navy Yard. And with the United States entering into peace treaties with the United Kingdom, France, Germany, and Japan, construction projects were canceled at the Navy Yard and thousands of people were put out of work. You know, you go through a period of 10 years where you're not doing much work here, the infrastructure starts to crumble. Um, and so we actually see the first uptick in activity, not leading up to World War II, but during the Great Depression, because there's a number of major Works Progress Administration projects that are done here at the Navy Yard. It's a lot of rehab work that's being done, rehabbing some of the dry docks and the piers and the streets and the core infrastructure of the Navy Yard. So that, that employs several thousand people here in the early 19, mid-1930s. And then 1936, Japan announces that they're withdrawing from these uh, naval treaties. And so the treaties collapse. And so that's when we start to build up our Navy again. And so again, before America officially enters World War II, we do see the activity start to tick up here in the late 1930s. From the time Congress makes the first appropriation for a new naval ship until she slides down the ways to take her place in the United States fleet, expert designers and draftsmen, highly trained shipbuilders and skilled mechanics take part in her construction. The equipment is the best. Guns and machinery are of the latest design. 
He has the ruggedness of a champion heavyweight prize fighter and yet the precision of an expensive watch. And then, of course, once the war breaks out in Europe in September 1939, things start to continue to grow and they start constructing our two largest dry docks here, numbers five and six, in July 1941. Yeah, five months before uh, Pearl Harbor, they start the major expansion of this and, and a number of other shipyards around the country as well. Back in 1916, the USS Arizona became the pride of the fleet and the pride of Brooklyn. On the week of its commission, the Brooklyn Times Union declared, quote, the super dreadnought Arizona, which was built in the Brooklyn Yard, is one of the outstanding and unsurpassed feats of the American Navy. It is the most modern and most powerful battleship in the world. The Brooklyn Navy Yard bid for the ship at such a low figure that the experts in Washington did not believe it could be done. Finally, a contract came to Brooklyn and the yard made good in what has opened the eyes of naval contractors the world over. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese attacked the naval base in Pearl Harbor, a strike that would ensure the entry of the United States into World War II on the Allied side. The greatest loss that day was the USS Arizona. 1177 of the over 1,500 crewmen on board were killed in the attack. At news of the sinking of the Arizona, 5,000 miles away in Brooklyn, preparations were made to ramp up production even further and bring into the Navy Yard a whole new workforce. We'll get to the greatest moment at the Navy Yard and then its tragic closure right after this. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. And in support of its ships at sea, the Navy was building upon shore a vast and widespread organization of supply and repair. For without access to sources of fuel and ammunition, a man of war is of little use. Today, workmen and naval personnel at yards and bases all over the world share the responsibility of keeping the ships of the U.S. and Allied fleets at a peak of readiness and effectiveness. During World War II, the Brooklyn Navy Yard becomes one of the most bustling hubs of activity, which is saying something considering the increased importance of other New York locations, such as Governor's Island, which was the headquarters of the U.S. First Army, the Brooklyn Army Terminal in Bay Ridge, the country's largest military supply base, and of course, the many other military bases in the region. New York City was fully engaged in this war. The Navy Yard was so productive that it was nicknamed the Can-Do Shipyard, repairing almost 5,000 ships during the war's duration. And the necessities of war also inspired a stunning transformation. 
So if we look at the just the raw numbers, in 1941, we have about 25,000 people working here. By 1944, it will triple. So it'll be, you know, 70 to 75,000 people working here. And that's just the civilian workforce. That's not counting all of the officers and sailors that are assigned here and all of the officers and sailors that are on all the ships that are passing through here. So, you know, you're talking probably well north of 100,000 people that are here like each day. Actually, if you look at the Navy Yard... Uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yard in World War II at its peak employment. It is still to this day the largest industrial enterprise in the history of New York State. The Navy Yard was famed for having long-tenured, highly-skilled employees who worked here for their entire lives, a stable of craftsmen and laborers who were mostly white men. The war, however, changed all that. Although the stage was actually set a bit before Pearl Harbor, when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed an executive order barring discriminatory employment practices by federal agencies. This came at a moment when thousands of African Americans were moving to northern cities in the early 20th century, looking for better work and life opportunities at a moment when the U.S. Navy itself was actually segregated with black sailors relegated to stewards and mess attendants, skilled jobs began opening up for black workers here at the Navy Yard. Approximately 5,500 black and other minority workers would eventually be employed here. The war also opened up opportunities for women here at the Navy Yard, although there had been women employed here even as early as the mid-19th century. Women have always worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, going back to its very beginning. Now, they didn't work in official roles. So if you look at, for example, the the receiving ship, the barracks here essentially for sailors, there were women that came there every day to wash clothes and cook food and things like that. There were women that worked in clerical roles, uh, go later in the 19th century. And women worked here in manufacturing as well, because one of the major roles of the Navy Yard from about the 1850s through the 1960s was making all the flags for the U.S. Navy. So there's a huge flag factory, and that was largely staffed by uh, female seamstresses. So the change that happens in World War II is that women start to work in what we call the production workforce. So they start to actually build the ships. And so that starts in the summer of 1942. You have the first cohort of about 120 women that come to work as production workers, and that would eventually grow to almost 5,000. You know, of those 120 women in that first cohort, 12 of them are African-American. So you're seeing not just women, but a diverse group of women coming coming to work here. And when they start working here, they are assigned to work in the shops. So all of the work that they're doing is inside the production buildings at the yard. They're not working on the ships. So they're not working in the dry docks on the shipways or on the ships in the water. They're instead um, doing work inside the shops. And the Navy justified this in a few ways. One, they said that working on the ships was more difficult, that women weren't equipped to do it. But also when a ship, say, came in for repairs, in most cases, all of the sailors would stay on the ship. So if you imagine sending an 18-year-old woman onto a ship with 2,000 similarly aged men on board, the Navy didn't feel that that was an appropriate situation. So they use this as an excuse to also give women different job titles and different pay scale. So for the first 
two years of uh, women's work here, they're paid uh, roughly half of what their male equivalents are receiving for the same level of training and the same work. Um, that changes in 1944, in May 1944, when they're given the same pay skill, and, and women are finally allowed to work on board the ships here at the Navy Yard. We are still short millions of hands. We must call upon women. Women are called upon to leave their homes and take jobs. Among our young unmarried women, and among older women whose children are grown, we have a large reserve. They discover that factory work is usually no more difficult than housework. Employers find that women can do many jobs as well as men. Some jobs better. The advertising campaign using the heroic Rosie the Riveter successfully brought women into spaces where they had only served in domestic capacities. The long-term social effects of these wartime changes were immense, as women could take pride in contributing to the war effort while learning valuable skills that would otherwise not have been offered to them. I have a daughter in the waves, and I had a son on the Arizona. That's a good enough reason for anyone. I'm an old maid, and I didn't have anyone until I took this defense job. Now, I have a family of 10 million to look after. I go to college, but I arrange my classes so that I can help out in the war effort. This way I'll get my diploma and war bonds. This was a fleeting moment in equality, however. On May 8, 1945, Germany surrendered. And after America dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the war was officially over. And so, too, were most of these opportunities for women. One thing we should say, though, about all these new workers coming in, you know, we have 50,000 new workers coming in. The vast majority of those, including all of the women, um, are what are called unclassified employees. So they have a job for the duration of the war plus six months. So when the war ends and they really draw down the workforce here at the Navy Yard, they're also the first to go. So essentially, you don't after the war, you don't have any female production workers here anymore. And of course, the difference between, say, a man that came to work here for the war, you also have, you're you're unclassified, so you get let go in 1945, 1946. You could walk down the street, you could go down to Red Hook and get another job in another shipyard over there. Women couldn't do that. Um, And so for many of the women that worked here, that was the end of the road of their career as a welder, as a ship fitter, sadly. And you had this loss of skills and talent. Following the war, the Navy Yard obviously scaled down some operations, but it was still heavily involved in upgrading older ships, and it even produced a few new aircraft carriers. One of these carriers, however, would be the site of the worst disaster in the Navy Yard's history, and an event which spelled the beginning of the end for this historic place. On December 19, 1960, Hundreds of crew were working on a massive new supercarrier named the USS Constellation in honor of the statehoods of Hawaii and Alaska and the introduction of the new 50-star flag. By the winter of 1960, the ship was nearly ready to be delivered to the Navy. Just three days earlier, two airplanes collided over the skies of Brooklyn, one plane crashing in Park Slope and the other in Staten Island. Brooklyn's emergency services were still severely overextended when, three days later, on December 19th, the USS Constellation at the Navy Yard 
caught fire. An inferno ignited by hundreds of gallons of spilled diesel fuel upon wooden scaffolding. Many of the firefighters who had fought the blaze in Park Slope were once again fighting a deadly fire. 50 people were killed and hundreds more seriously injured, filling the local hospitals. It's hell, said one survivor. It's filled with smoke and the plates on the floor are so damned hot you can't stand still for even a minute without it burning into the soles of your feet. The area around the Brooklyn Navy Yard was radically different by the 1960s. Now, last we checked in here on the neighborhood, it was still a mix of industrial and working class residents with fun little Sands Street providing much of the needed distraction to those at the Navy Yard. Much of the housing was so old that by the early 20th century, it was demolished and replaced with warehouses and parking lots. And a large portion was cleared in the city's infamous slum clearance programs. By 1950, you could say goodbye to most of Sands Street and so much of former Irish town. In 1952, the New York Housing Authority built the Farragut Houses, a public housing project with almost 1,400 apartments named for the Civil War naval officer, David Farragut. The city's greater financial and infrastructural problems would hamper the health of the neighborhood, but nothing would be worse for Vinegar Hill and the surrounding residential area than the closure of the Navy Yard in 1966. There is a major study that's commissioned in the Kennedy administration under Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara to analyze cost comparison between building ships in public yards versus private contractors. And the report, surprise, surprise, says you should build all the ships with private yards. So this is part of a a larger process where the Navy wants to get out of the shipbuilding business. And so essentially they're trying to decide which yards are we going to close. And the Brooklyn Navy Yard had a number of strikes against it. Um, For one, we didn't have the capability to build or repair nuclear-powered vessels. That was maybe a blessing in disguise because uh, we don't have to deal with a lot of environmental contamination issues that some of some of our sister yards have had to deal with after building nuclear vessels. So that was one thing. We did have, you know, aging infrastructure. We did have some of the highest labor costs in the country. But you can blame the Roebling family for one of the Navy Yard's biggest strikes against it. But one of the main obstacles, literally and figuratively, to keeping the Brooklyn Navy Yard open were the Brooklyn and Manhattan bridges. So as ships got larger and larger, they had a tougher time fitting underneath those bridges. These were the lowest obstructions to any major naval installation in the country. Uh, And actually during World War II, to deal with this issue, the Brooklyn Navy Yard actually built an annex in Bayonne, New Jersey, south of all of the bridges. So they could essentially, when ships would come in, they would go to Bayonne, they would take off pieces of the superstructure, the antennas and stacks and things, then bring them to Brooklyn, do the work here, and then bring them back to Bayonne and do that in reverse. In the 50s, when we were building these super carriers, they actually developed a system that was put on all the carriers at the time uh, where the big uh, radio and radar masks could actually fold down so they could fit underneath the bridge. And these super carriers, the clearance to get underneath the Brooklyn Bridge was about six feet. That's a very tight squeeze. And, you know, these are aircraft carriers that are 
about two-thirds the size of the aircraft carriers we have today. So ships just getting bigger and bigger. And so they're not going to tear down the Brooklyn Bridge. So the, I think that was a, a major contributing factor to, to close the yard. In November of 1964, McNamara announced the closure of 95 bases and a cut of $1 billion from the Navy Yard system nationwide. This would include not only the Navy Yard, but other New York military bases which would close, including the Brooklyn Army Terminal and the Army Base on Governor's Island. That place eventually went to the Coast Guard. Keep in mind, 9,000 civilians were still employed here. And so, no surprise, the announcement shook the city. Some of you may remember this moment, even if you were very young. New Yorkers not only had pride in having the Navy Yard here, it seemed almost impossible to extricate it from the city's history. As you've heard today, it traces all the way back to the doorstep of the Revolutionary War, It's been part of the whole region for so long, and now its legacy seemed to be on the verge of disappearing. There had been major efforts to try and stop it. There were major rallies here. Robert Kennedy, who at the time was running for Senate, he made that a big part of his campaign, was trying to keep the Brooklyn Navy Yard open. But of course, by the time he was sworn in as a senator, the decision had already been made. The New York Naval Shipyard at Brooklyn in its final hours, a massive, sad, and silent witness to a glorious past. It was one of the greatest shipbuilding and repair yards in the world. The Defense Department ordered her closing 18 months ago for economy reasons. The ghosts of our mightiest ships still remain, however. Now the Brooklyn Navy Yard is officially closed in special ceremonies. Attending are over 1,000 persons, both military and civilian. We go from, there are 9,600 people working here in November 1964, and that would eventually uh, go down to zero in June 1966. Rear Admiral W.F. Petrovic, Yard Commander, accepts the flag. And so an era ends. The Brooklyn Navy Yard, cradle and haven for U.S. warships for over a century and a half becomes 217 acres of silence. And now things get interesting. Remember that the Navy Yard is not actually part of New York City, administratively that is, until now. Basically, from the time they announced the closure of the Navy Yard, the city begins working to to buy it. They eventually negotiate a sale for about $24 million. And actually, this is one of the first major transfers of a property from the federal government to a municipality. And they're looking for, you know, what they call the time the big fix. So what they want to do is get one tenant essentially, to take over the Navy Yard. Um, The other part of it, though, is that they want to make sure that this is going to provide employment to local people. You know, by the time the Brooklyn Navy Yard closed, about 20% of the workforce was Black and Caribbean. And so it was a really vital economic engine here in Brooklyn. And so they want to make sure that there's local leadership um, and that they're providing local jobs. But their solution to that is to get one company to come in here. And the company that's ultimately selected is is C-Train, which is a shipping and shipbuilding company. And so they 
set up shop here in 1969, and for about 10 years, they're building mostly crude oil supertankers here. So we don't stop building ships in 1966. We actually have a period of about 10 years when we're building these commercial ships. And so they're sort of fulfilling that promise that they're going to employ local people in the community. The problem is that C-Train never employs more than 5,000 people. So they never get back to the numbers that the Navy Yard had. And it ultimately goes out of business in 1979. And so that blows a huge hole in the plans for the Navy Yard. Over in the surviving vestiges of old Irish town, many of those remaining structures were bought and renovated by artists in the 1960s and 70s, an occurrence that was happening throughout Brooklyn's larger brownstone neighborhoods. Eventually, that group would readopt the name Vinegar Hill. And in 1997, Vinegar Hill became an official New York historic district. And by the 90s, the Navy Yard was about to be reborn. Now, over the prior decades, New York had attempted to assign um, undesirable functions to the site of the former yard. Now, although thankfully a water treatment plant was never placed here, thanks largely to neighborhood activists. But if you are an unlucky car owner, you do know of one unsavory aspect that remains in the yard today. On the western end is the city's tow pound, which opened in the 1980s. But the key to the Navy Yard's success came not in attempting to find one big tenant, but dozens and dozens of smaller ones. So it's, it's in the late 80s when they start chopping up some of our buildings into smaller spaces. So get small artisan businesses to come in here, and then hopefully those businesses will grow with the yard. So when we look at the success of the Navy Yard today, that's really 30 years of hard work that got us to this point. Um, but where we are today, we're at about 550 businesses and about 11,000 jobs. So we're at more than we were when the Navy Yard was closed. Yeah, there's a huge diversity of different types of businesses here. But again, the commitment is really to provide jobs to people in the local community. And mostly that's done through industrial and manufacturing businesses. But we have a lot of technology businesses um, that are here as well. The maritime industry is still very big here in the Navy Yard. Yeah, it's it's really the largest center of uh, manufacturing and industrial jobs anywhere in New York City. Although the Navy Yard was never then or even now fully accessible to the public, there was one interesting architectural feature that beguiled and entranced passing New Yorkers. And that was a row of dilapidated houses on Flushing Avenue and Navy Street, houses that were built in the 1860s and 70s. One century later, however, these beautiful and gracious homes had become essentially haunted houses, overgrown with vines, their ceilings and walls falling inward. You know, quite honestly, these houses, Admiral's Row probably ranks in my top five most influential places that inspired my love of New York history. There was even a greenhouse, a, a tennis court, the whole place kind of a, a dark, romantic ruin. They also look pretty dangerous, honestly. But maybe, you know, maybe there was this hope people had. You know, perhaps they could be renovated. I'm not exactly sure what they would be today, if that was even possible to do. This was a hotly debated subject in the 2000s during the Bloomberg administration. But unfortunately, the buildings had to be demolished. Today, standing on that spot is a Wegmans supermarket. 
There are, however, many beautiful restored buildings on the Navy Yard property today, and some of those are open sometimes to the public. My own personal favorite, for a variety of reasons, is the home of Kings County Distillery, which is home in a 19th century paymaster's building. Now, not only is Kings County New York's oldest operating legal craft distillery, founded in 2010, but the distillery and its tasting room are technically on Sands Street, separated by that gatehouse on the former avenue of debauchery and whiskey stills. In 2004, the Navy Yard became a film lot, the home of Steiner Studios, where movies like Joker, The Wolf of Wall Street, and TV shows like Pose and The Marvelous Ms. Maisel were filmed. And in recent years, the Navy Yard has become a food destination. And now one of the main gateways to the yard is, of course, Building 77, which is at the corner of Flushing Avenue and Vanderbilt Avenue. And that's where the food manufacturing hub is located. Most famously, there is uh, Russ and Daughters. So if you want to go to uh, see the bakery, and they also have a retail store for Russ and Daughters. But if you go to any Russ and Daughters location, every bagel, bialy, babka, black and white cookie is baked here at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. But perhaps the most beautiful and most mysterious space in the former Navy Yard is the cemetery of the old Naval Hospital. Now, the hospital has been a New York landmark since 1965. It's actually one of the first buildings to ever be landmarked in New York. That hospital had a cemetery. And although in 1926, many human remains were moved to Cypress Hill Cemetery, it's believed that hundreds more remain here. So as a result, the site of the former cemetery today is a naval cemetery landscape, a beautiful wild greenscape with a winding boardwalk, rich and alive with sunflower, milkweed, mountain mint, rough-leaved goldenrod, and beautiful cardinal flowers. It is as far away from the mechanical trappings of a dry dock as you can possibly imagine, but it remains an important and moving component of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. A big thanks to Andrew Gustafson, Vice President of Turnstile Tours. They offer many different kinds of tours of the Navy Yard, including a past, present, and future history tour, architecture and infrastructure, one tour just to World War II, and one, that sounds pretty fun to me, a bike tour of the Navy Yard. Now, much of the place is closed to the public. You have to work there to see many of these places. But during their tours, you do actually get to see a lot of these restricted areas. They also operate tours of the Brooklyn Army Terminal in Bay Ridge, if you want to round out your experience here, and also tours of Prospect Park. You can find out more information at turnstiletours.com. By the way, the best way to get to the Navy Yard is actually by ferry. The NYC ferry has a stop there right from Wall Street. Building 92, where Andrew and I had our conversation, has a museum to the Navy Yard's history. And finally, you have to round out your trip here to the Navy Yard with a visit to the Naval Cemetery Landscape, a part of the Brooklyn Greenway Initiative. And that landscape, of course, is free. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for historical and present-day images of the Navy Yard. 
And please support the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon.com. Your support helps fund shows like this very one that you're listening to, and you also get bonus audio. Now, Andrew and I talked the history of the Navy Yard for over an hour, and only a portion of our chat was used on the show today. So patrons are going to get the entire interview with so many more fascinating details. This man knows everything about the Navy Yard. Now, over at the Gilded Gentleman podcast, you can hear Carl talk with Esther Crane of Ephemeral New York, chatting about the summertime activities of New Yorkers from the Gilded Age, Central Park, Madison Square, Coney Island, and beyond. You can find that at the Gilded Gentleman podcast. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.